0: application from Psalm 10, not only into your own life personally, but in the in regards to the world that we're living in, in, in regards to maybe your own workplace, or in regards to where you see in your workplace, because in, we see lots of crazy things going on in our workplaces, in your homes, with other, in, with other family members, where there's now division and strife, where there hasn't been, and, and of course, for sure, what's going on in, in our own governments, in, in our own nation, in our own country. So, May you be encouraged by where we're at. So let's read Psalm 10 this morning, and we'll pray. And so in verse 10, this is really cool. It's it's so applicable. I love this. I mean, I could spend all day just on this first half of verse 1, right? It says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? You ever thought that, 2020? Even going into this next year where you've seen things happen that don't seem right or just has uh, caused strife and trouble and, and problems, and you're like, man, God, where are you at? Do you not see what's going on here? Why are you standing far off? He says, Psalmist writes, David says, why do you hide in times of trouble? And, and David, deep down in his heart, knew it's not true, knew these things weren't true, and we're going to get to that, but this is the reality of what he was feeling in, 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 results, in, in light of what was going on in his life around him, in his world, in his in his, in, in, and we don't know the specifics of it, but, but the specificsness of it doesn't matter in relationship to the questions here because this is something we can relate to. David goes, man, he says, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. David says, let him be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. And we're all like, yep, I see that. His ways are always prospering. Who? Are the wicked. This is still the wicked. David's going, man, the wicked, they're always prospering in their ways. They're evil ways, they're wicked ways. And, God, and David says, your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the village. In the secret places he murders the innocent. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws them in to his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, listen to this God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And then David, arise, O Lord. O oh God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. And then verse 14, here's this but God, this but God moment that we cling to, that we look to, that we put our faith in even still today. He says, but you have seen For you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Literally, what that means is take away his strength. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. And Lord, we pray, God, that this would be true, that we would see this day where there would be no more oppression. And Lord, we know that it's probably not going to be in our lifetime while we're still here, Lord. But we know ultimately that you're a good God, a king who is righteous and true, a loving God, and your judgments are, are, are um, just. And so, Lord, teach us to wait on you when we live in this world that is fallen, where we see evil, where, where, we, where it appears that evil is prevailing, where we see so many different injustices go on around us, Lord and even to us. And Father, we we cry out to you this morning, Lord, asking that um, you would continue to do the good work that you have promised to do. Lord, that we would see your hand working in the land of the living, Lord, where we are at, so that we may have hope and courage. Father, strengthen us. And Father, as I teach um, through this psalm this morning, I ask God that in my weakness you would strengthen, Lord, that it would be by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that my stammering lips and my mind that is often confused and distracted, Lord, that it would be attentive to you. And Lord, that you would speak to us through me today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as we read this psalm, I think the first thing that you should notice is that as we've gone through uh, nine of these other psalms up to now, um, going through them systematically, is that this psalm um, has a similar theme. As do a lot of the psalms, but a similar theme to the to the previous psalms that we've already read and studied through, which describe um, hardships, problems, and adversaries that that um, can only be rightly. ...dealt with by our faith in God. And, and really, when we react to certain situations, you know, we probably take things into our own hands. And nine times out of ten, if you're like me, it's not really a faith-based response. It's usually an emotional response It seems right to me. And it's, it doesn't work out very good when I have hardships, problems, or some kind of adversities. But, but we want to learn from this psalm and the other psalms that we read in God's Word... ...is how to deal with these things that we see in the midst of our lives today rightly, as we place our faith in God. And, and that's a lot of us, a lot of us are asking that question. You know, what do we do? What does God want us to do in, in, in responding to the circumstances around us when we see injustice, when we see corruption, when we see sin, when we see the wickedness that, that evil people do? How does God want us to respond? And, and there's a lot, of, a lot of ideas out there right now on, on how to do that. And there's a lot of emotional reaction that's taking place even within the church and among believers today. A lot of discussion that's going on. And, and there's a lot of right ways to do things, but there's a lot of wrong ways to do things too. And so we want to be guided by faith as we put our trust in God and move forward into this next year and, and as we wait for the Lord's return for however many years that is and go, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? And I don't just mean on a national level. I mean, first of all, in your home, in your family, uh, you know, in your workplace, with your neighbors, what is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to stand in the midst of the face of wickedness, in the midst of the face of evil, in the midst of the face, face of deception and lies and injustice? We're called to make a stand for truth and righteousness. But we do so in accordance to faith by God, faith in God, as we follow his lead, giving us the strength to do so. So this psalm shows us how to rightly deal with that, and it gives us encouragement to do so. But this psalm is different than other psalms, and where I want to point out that the hardships, the problems, and the adversities that the psalmist was facing, um, the previous psalms were all coming from a wickedness or from an, an enemy who was on the outside, you know, and we know that Israel was surrounded by pagan people, and, and as they dwelt in the promised land, and they were constantly being attacked. And, and we, uh, we're, I think, we all kind of expect attacks from enemies on the outside when attacks come. But and, and, and even when you consider the, the psalm where David was writing about his son Absalom and the rebellion that was going on, even though David and Absalom were were family as David's son was Absalom when, when Absalom raised the rebellion it was it was really clear that he was still an enemy on the outside and and but listen the hardships and the problems and, and the adversities that David was facing in this psalm that he is now writing about when he speaks about about wicked people who are on are uh, coming at him, or 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 that he sees these things going. on And these are people from the inside. Specifically, what David's writing about because these are these are Hebrew people that he's writing about. These aren't the Philistines. These aren't the 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 um, Amorites. It's, it's it's not this this ungodly pagan people. These are people who should know better. That's that's the whole idea behind what David's writing about. People, literally, David will say people who. Who claim to know God but do not seek or consider God in any of their thoughts? People who know God, people who claim to know God or, or claim to, um, but they don't seek or consider God in any kind of way. Remember, the nation of Israel—they lived, like I said, with all kinds of wicked people around them who who were their enemies. And and these, but what we see is and what we know is when you study out the history of the Hebrew people, they weren't the only ones who had the corner on the market when it came to wickedness. matter of fact, God had to discipline his people all the time and, and have other nations prevail against them and bring them into bondage so that they would repent of their wickedness. And, and so many Hebrew people within the, the covenant community who were a part of the nation of Israel, who were not seeking God, did not consider God in, in their thoughts. And these were people who, who claim to know God, but according to what we read, look again, it's specifically in verse four where it talks about it, is they did not see God, and then God was not in any of their thoughts. In other words, this is what it boils down to. And again, as we tie this to what's going on in the world around us, I think we see some similarities in where um, the, the way people live their lives um, Proved that even though they knew of God, they do not know God in a personal way or even care about God's will for their, for their lives. And when I think about our nation, we know that our nation was established on godly principles. That our forefathers knew God, loved God. Not all of them, but when you study out most of them. And our country was birthed because of, of this desire to have religious freedom, sovereignty, to worship the one true and living god. And and so for many 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 years we've always been known by the world as a, a nation of Christians. Uh, we are a Christian based nation. That's I don't think it can no longer I don't think that can really be said of us anymore but there are clearly people who claim to know god But by their actions, do not seek or consider God in any of their thoughts. And the most latest example of this is, is did you guys, I'm sure you probably did, but when Congress started its 170th session this year, they had a man pray. As they have done for every session of Congress as it began since the the conception, since the very first one. And this guy's a member of Congress and he claims to be, well he is, he doesn't claim to be, he's he's an ordained United Methodist minister. Did anybody hear his prayer? I don't know if you can call it a prayer. I don't know what it was. But in that, he didn't pray to, to God. <laughs> he prayed to many gods. And at the end, he ended his prayer, well, not with the amen, but a woman. And, and this guy standing up there claiming to know God, as many people in our world today do, and that's not just secularly speaking. There are many people within the church today you can look, and I'm not called to judge their heart, but I am called to judge their actions, where they claim to know God, but, it's, but from their actions and the words that they speak, they do not seek or consider God in any of their thoughts. And I think that David's categorizing these people as wicked people because that's what their actions represent, even though David knows that these Hebrew people are also covenant people. But that doesn't mean that they know God. They know of God, but they don't know God. And I think that's true in the world that we're living in today. Remember, the nation of Israel, um, well, let me just put it this way. Titus, Titus kind of gives us a, a, a description of that, a more accurate description. In Titus chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, listen, see if this seems relevant to you and what I'm talking about and what we see going on. We're told about these kinds of people when it says this. Titus writes and he says, "...to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure." Nothing is holy, nothing is sacred, right? He says, but even even their minds and their consciences are defiled. He says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And so I think it's important for us to notice this because more times than not, when hardships and problems come from an adversary who is on the inside, the pain and suffering that comes is, is more tense because we don't expect that from them. We don't expect for our, our, our representatives, our leaders, um, other family members, whoever it may be, bosses, to act that way. Even maybe a spouse. We, don't, we, we wouldn't expect them to act that way. And so there's this more intense, perhaps, pain or suffering that is felt when the adversary is on the inside rather than when it is on the outside because we don't expect the attacks Um, And the unexpected blow with it brings the additional feelings of betrayal, um, a feeling perhaps of being stabbed in the back by someone who's close to us, but more importantly, by someone who we've trusted. Someone who we've trusted to do something in the way that they said that they would do. And so even more so than when we deal with the adversaries on the outside, we need, guys, to put our faith in God in order to rightly deal with hardships and the problems that come from the adversities and from the adversaries that are on the inside. And so with that, David, in Psalm 10, verse 1, with that understanding and seeing what David's facing and looking at how we're facing some of the thing, same kind of uh, things, he says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? And light of this question, really two questions, I think we see David wrestling with a question that each of us has also asked, especially in light of the times and the injustices um, that we see going on, or in times of injustice and suffering that we ourselves are personally going through. And it's this question of this, is, is why doesn't God do something about the prosperity of the wicked and the misery of the righteous when they are, are afflicted? And it's, it's, I see things going on in my, in my world and in my life at times, and I'm like, God, how's this happening? What's going on? And this question seems to be something that I think all people can identify with, and, and it's discussed throughout the Word of God many, many times in a very real personal way. And in the Psalms, also in Psalm 13, verses 1 through 3, the same. Thought is dealt with. The same feelings are expressed in Psalm 27, verse 9. Also, Psalm 30, verse 7. Psalm 73 and, 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 and Psalm 88, verses 13 through 15 are just some. And as a matter of fact, if you study God's word, you know there's like really a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to this kind of thought process because of what happened. And it's, it's, this, it's the book of Job. And, and, and Job asked this question. And the first thing you need to know about Job is that Job was a godly man. As a matter of fact, God's in heaven and he's looking upon Job and Satan comes to his throne and he's, he's accusing, uh, we don't know exactly what the conversation, but God goes to, 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 to Satan he goes, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan, as he is, he's all, yeah, you know, the only reason he loves you and serves you is because you bless him. And, and then you can go and read the rest of the story, but all kinds of hard things happen to Job. God allows for it. And, and, and Job, who was a godly man, in Job chapter 13, verse 24, during great time of suffering, he cries out to God, and he says, why do you hide your face from me and regard me as your enemy? In other words, Job's going, God, what are you doing? What, why have you allowed for me? What have I done wrong? Why are you against me? And the whole time, God was never against Job, never. God never turned his back on Job. God never forsook Job. But Job was hurting. He was suffering. And the fact of the matter is that there have been manly, godly people, when we think about it, down through time, who have lost things. They've lost their homes. Godly people doing the right thing. They've lost their jobs. They've lost possessions, families, and even their lives because of other people's wicked deeds. And these past and present things, I think they can cause us to ask is, where was God when these wicked people were doing these evil things? Guys, the point is, is when we're hurting, when we're hurting because of someone else's wickedness, we, like David, can wonder where God is, and we might even feel like he's far away from us and that he's not paying attention to us. But when this happens, it reveals two things. I think one good and, and one positive and one negative. We won't use good, bad. One positive thing, one negative thing when we're in this spot. And the first is, the thing that it first reveals to me is that these feelings that I have, these feelings that we have, these feelings that David had, they reveal that like David, we have a great affection for God. We care about what God sees and what God thinks, and, and, and we care about God's favor for us. Because when we're crying out to God in the midst of that suffering we we've God, can you have favor on me? Can you intervene here? And we care about God's favor for us. And this is a good thing since there's nothing better than than being aware of of God's presence. There's nothing better than desiring God's presence. Not only in the time of tribulation, of course, but even in the good times. God, I just want to be with you. I want to hang out with you. After all, he created us to hang out with us. And when we wrecked that, he came and died for us so we could be restored to him so that he could hang out with us. That's the gospel message via Sean. (laughs) God wants to hang out with you. You know, And he'll do whatever it takes to do so. And when we desire that, that's a good thing. And when we're in the midst of that time of the suffering, we're like, God, why don't you hang out with me? As if he stopped hanging out with us. Now he's allowing us to, to hurt and suffer. And, and we equate one with the other, and that's not ever the case. And it's a good thing to desire the presence of God. But we should also realize that our questioning in times like this, it, it might and probably is rooted in lack of faith also right? This is unbelief. And this is because we're looking, here's what it, this is what it really boils down to, okay? It gets real. It's because in those moments, is it not true? We're looking, we're looking for, um, (laughs) we're looking for an outward deliverance to bring us an inward comfort. We're looking for the circumstances to change that we might have peace. If it just wasn't like this, if I just didn't have to go through this, if there was just this, if it was just that, we're looking for an outward deliverance to bring us our inward comfort, and in doing so, we question God's closeness to us and God's care of us when we're not delivered in the way that we want. It's like, it's like when you, you have to do things that your kids don't like, that you as a parent know has to be done, and what do they say? You don't love me. It's the same kind of thing. And it's, it's, an, it's an unbelief in God's care, unbelief in the nation and nature and, and person of God, and and so we, by an act of complaint in that time, are not only expressing an unbelief; we are, in one way, also declaring as some kind of judge against God that He's unjust against us. And in doing so, we say that God's not paying attention, or that God does not care us, care for us. And if and if God was paying attention, right then 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 he would be caring for us and we wouldn't be suffering in these ways that we'll be suffering. God, if you really knew what was going on in America, if you really cared about justice, then, then fill in the blank. Then this wouldn't be happening or that would be happening. But in that moment, what we've chosen to do is just, we've chosen to stand off from God and in one sense kind of wag our figure at him or put ourselves on the throne and look down upon him. We stand afar off from God while making the accusation and complaint that he's the one that's standing afar off from us. But the fact of the matter is, is that God, and you guys know this, but hear it again this morning. You need to be reminded of this. I need to be reminded of this. God's word reminds us of this. The fact of the matter is that God never promised us that we wouldn't experience hard things or that we would never have to suffer. In fact, when Jesus was here on this earth with his disciples, listen, he said to them simply because they were his disciples that they would experience suffering for no other reason, just because you're my disciple. He said, he said, because they hate him, that the same wicked people who hated him, they said, they're going to hate you also. But Jesus did in the midst of those times and still to us today, he did promise and he does promise to be with us to never leave us, to never forsake us. Furthermore, God, on top of that, has made these additional promises available to us in a very real way to give us joy and his peace, he says, that surpasses all understanding whenever we're going through a hard thing if we draw near to him through prayer. Draw near to him through prayer. Therefore, the inward comfort that we're seeking in times of trouble does not come from an outward deliverance. Rather, it comes from having faith in the fact that God does see our trouble. Guys, God sees what's going on. He sees. And He sees the things that we don't see that we assume are going on behind closed doors. And we're like, oh yeah, that's what's going on. God knows. He knows. He, in, in the midst of that, Not only does he see what's going on, but he sees in our heart. And what I mean by that, he sees the grief that we're feeling right now with the loss of things that we see going on around us. He feels the same grief. And we got to have faith not only that God sees our trouble, faith not only that God's aware of our grief in these times, but we also have to have faith this, the Bible says and tells us, that he's an ever-present helper to those who commit themselves to him. He's an ever-present helper. And what I mean by that is you can, you can choose to make a stand in your world, in your, your paradigm, in, in whatever, little, whatever size that is, whether it's your family dynamic, your work dynamic, your, your city, your county, your state, your nation, your world, whatever that paradigm is, is, is that even though everybody can be coming against you, when you make stands for what is good and true and right, as you put your faith in God, you can trust that He's always going to be that ever-present helper in your time of need. When you commit yourself to Him, even though no one else is, is, is around you is. And in Psalm chapter forty-six, verses one through three, David writes and he says, "Man, God is God is our refuge and strength, and ever-present help in time of trouble. And He, because of that, man, that makes this declaration. And guys, we need to make the same declaration again today. Therefore, we will not fear." Even though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with surging, we will not fear. Guys, even if everything in our life no longer looks like the way that it has or the way that we we want it to, that doesn't mean that God's not there for us. That's what David's saying. Even though everything may fall apart and break down around me, you're still there. And in Psalm chapter. Well, one forty five verse eighteen it also said, "The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth in truth. No, as we continue on through the rest of these verses that 's verse one, okay? <laughs> important thing to notice in verses two through thirteen is that um, these verses are simply a description of these wicked people, and I love this because think about this in light of the world we're living in today. Think about this in in light of the the world that we're living in today. It's a description of the wicked people, what they do and why they do it. And I don't know about you, but I've seen things going on and I go, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? And we're told, in fact, Martin Luther, when this description is given about this, this, these wicked people in, in regards to what they do and why they do it, Martin Luther once wrote about this psalm. He said, he said, there is not in my judgment a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm does. As this psalm does. And, and in these verses, David, if you're taking notes, he makes four statements. Four statements of truth that express what the wicked Believe, And the reason for this is due to the fact, now, now hear me on this, the reason for this is, is because what a person believes ultimately determines how a person behaves. What we believe determines how we behave. And the very first thing that David points to in verses 2 and 4 is that the wicked in their pride persecute the poor because God is in none of their thoughts. What they do is reflective of what they believe. They don't believe God's, in any, God's not in their thoughts. They don't, believe, they don't believe that, or God's not in their... And well, let me get this. In other words, in their thoughts, this is what they're saying. There is no God. That's really what that means. They believe there's no God, and so they persecute the poor. The what and the why. And the Apostle Paul wrote about these types of people, and he also detailed what they do, and he explained this is the thing that we need to keep in mind. He explained that their, their unbelief, this, this idea that there is no God, is really just a willful suppression of, of, of what they already to know to be true about God. They know that God is real, that there is a God, yet they continue to say, the deny him in his thoughts, there is no God. And therefore, because they know the truth, Paul says, and yet they come to this place and do these things, he says, because of that, they're not exempt for the consequences of their wickedness and their unrighteous acts. I love that. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, Paul says this. He says, think about where we're at. And he says, since they do not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God... Since they do not think it worthy to retain the knowledge of God, He, God, gave them over to a depraved mind. I'm like, yep, that, I see some people like that. To do what ought not to be done. Yep, I see that. He says they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful, and malice. They are gossipers, or they are gossips, slanderers, God. Haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. How about this? He says, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I love that one. (laughs) They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but hear this, they also approve those who practice them. To me, that seems like an editorial that you might read in the paper today. It's from the Word of God. And in light of this, I think we'd better understand, I think in light of this, I think we then better understand what's written in Psalm 14, verse 1, and in Psalm 53, verse 1, which tells us this. It's very simply boiled down to this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool said in his heart there's no God. However, a person chooses to believe this lie when you think about it because in their mind then it frees them up to do whatever wicked wicked thing they they, they please to do. For by this lie they make themselves, and here's the, the breaking of the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. By doing this, what they do is that they then begin to make themselves their own God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the number one time that that we put a God before God is the God of self upon that throne. And the lie is not a new lie. This lie is not a new lie. And this is, the very, it is the very, one of the very first lies, probably maybe even the first lie that Satan spoke back to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. When he said, when he's there at, the, there at the, the, the forbidden tree, right? the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, don't eat of this one. And Satan's there with Eve. And why was Eve there? I don't know. Where was Adam? I don't know. That's all the Bible study. But Satan goes to Eve. He says, You shall be like God if you eat of it. You shall be like God. In other words, you will be your own God when you eat. In light of this, we we should see that Eve and all others who desire to be their own God do so to get what they want and do so, here's, here's another aspect of it, even at the expense of others, right? They have their own agendas. They have their own motives, their own desires that they're trying to fulfill, and it has nothing to do with, Other than just self, they live to plead themselves and fulfill their selfish desires. And then, of course, and then according to verse 3, what we read here, then they, and this we see this more and more and more and more as evils prevailing in this world that we're living in today, they then begin to boast about it, right? They boast about it. They boast about their sins. And in addition to saying there is no God, they look at verse 6, they, according to verse 6, also say this. I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. In other words, in their momentary peace and prosperity, which comes as a result of their wickedness, they're given a false sense of security. That's what it really boils down to. And because God is long-suffering, and because God is merciful when it comes to enacting his judgments, right? The Bible says it's a strange work. It's still his work. He's a just God, but he's slow in acting because he's a loving God, willing that none should perish. Consequently, the wicked, as a result of that, think they're getting away with their sins and their unrighteous acts. But the Bible makes it very clear that it will all end suddenly for them. Again, it's this, this great switcheroo. You think you're getting away with it, but you're not. We can look at it and say, it looks like they're getting away with it, but guys, they're not. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, it declares this. And when it says this, it says, For you know very well, church, right, that the day of the Lord comes like a what? A thief in the night. Unexpectedly, he says, why people are saying this, peace and safety. He says, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And God says, they will not escape. And the point is, the only people who have any true sense of security are those who put their faith in God and and put their faith in his promises because this is the place where only true hope and security lasts. And David in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, he affirms this and he says this. And may this be our our prayer too. May this be our thoughts too today. He says, my soul, my soul, David's speaking to his soul, and sometimes we got to do that. It's like, John, you got to talk to yourself. you got to tell yourself the truth. He says, my soul, wait silently for God alone. Wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. What is David saying? And this is going to be something we hear a lot this next year. Stay the course. David says, stay the course, soul. Stay the course. Church, stay the course. Stay the course. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before God. God is a refuge for us. And so the wicked say there is no God. And they say, I shall not be moved. And then in verse 11, we're told about the wicked, that they also say this, God doesn't see me. And I always picture it like, (laughs) God doesn't see me. You know, it was like, I used to be that kid to be like, my parents didn't see me. I was like, yes, got away with that. You know, they always found out sooner or later, right? Well, mostly, <laughs> but God they say, God doesn't see me. And because they believe God does not see what they are doing, David says very graphically in this illustrative way, he says, like a lion, they, according to verse 10, they hide and they watch for opportunities to, prounce, to pounce on their helpless prey. And like hunters and fishermen, they catch their prey up in their nets. And in light of this understanding of the wicked, now think about this, because this brings us, I think, back to verse one. This is a similar question or a similar statement that's being, being made. It's asked in a question. They're stating it's the truth. The wicked versus the godly asking where is God. The wicked say, God does not see me. And yet at times we are on the same, in the same place, perhaps on the other side of the coin where we go, God, where are you? You stand afar off. Do you not see what's going on? Same thing. It's kind of eerie. It's a little depressing, but it should be at very least this statement of the wicked God does not see. It should be at, for us at very least a sad reminder of how we have a shared belief with the wicked in those times when we call out to God and shamefully question if he sees what we're going through when we're in times of trouble, when we doubt that. Unfortunately, when that happens, guys, listen, the same thread of unbelief, that same thread of unbelief, it always leads to the same conclusion, and it's this, it's that God will not judge. The wicked says that, they don't, God doesn't see me, he's not going to judge me, and yet on our side of it, we say, God doesn't see, why isn't he judging it's the same conclusion. I mean we do not believe that there will be justice for the injustices that are being perpetrated in the world around us, or the ones that are perpetrated against us. When the wicked do not believe then that they will be judged for the evil that they do. In verse thirteen, look, points out the very fourth thing, or the fourth thing that the wicked has said in his heart. As a result of this, is that God will not require an account. And the cool thing about verses 12 and 13 for me is that at this point when you study out, David then cries out to God for help, right? Because of who the wicked are, what they believe, and what they do, David cries out to God for help. And in the original Hebrew language, when he uses the name of God here or the name Lord here, there's three different Hebrew names that are enacted by David. The first is in verse 12 where David says, Arise, O Lord. And in that, he uses the Hebrew word, the name of God, Jehovah. And it's a reference to the God of the covenant. The Hebrew people were covenant people. They'd entered into this covenant with God. God had made promises to him. And he revealed himself in that covenant as Jehovah God. And then when David goes on to say, oh, God, lift up your hand, this Hebrew name is simply the word El. And it's, it's often used just in a prefixed kind of way when it goes on to say El and then another Name attached to a descriptive aspect of God's nature or the person of God. But that word El, that Hebrew word El, as it stands alone, it references this specifically the God of power, the great I am. God who is omnipotent, all-powerful. David is pointing us to that. And then in in verse 13, David uses a different Hebrew word for the name of God here, and it begins with the word El, but it's the word Elohim. And in that, he asks this, why do the wicked renounce God? Elohim. And he's referencing the great power of God as he goes on to this, but the ohim part of the L here really is a reference to, the, to God the judge. And David's recognizing the fact that God is all-powerful judge, God the judge. And the use of these three different names of God, it's intended, it is intended for David first and for us today be encouragement and a reminder of this, that God will keep his promises to us, his covenant promises to his people. And even though we are not Hebrew or of descent, most of us, except the birthday girl, you know is that is that we 've been brought in through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we have covenant promises that men made to Jesus, but we 've also been grafted in, and we 're covenant people, but God says also through this as we look at the name of God and we look at this judgment, this God of a judge, that there will be a reckoning that 's what david 's saying, God, you are this, so there will be this, you will have a day of reckoning when the wicked will be judged by a righteous and all-powerful God. And by design, this is intended to lift our eyes off of our troubles, what can bring fear and worry and discouragement and doubt, and put our eyes upon the person and the nature of God as we put our trust in Him and have those fears, worries, and doubts be replaced with joy and peace, assurance, hope, and trusting in God is how David closes this psalm out in verses 4, 14 through 18, right? With the, with the but God moment. And he expresses, as he's focused on now the person of God, his full confidence that God is on his throne and that not only that, but that because he's on his throne, everything's under control. And I know we tell ourselves that, but do we believe it? It seems almost cliche in the Christian world today to look at the world around us and see people who are in power who we maybe don't want and people who are in power who we do want and, or vice versa, whatever you look at, whether it's in your job or in your city or in your county or in the governmental level. Again, it's not a political thing, but when we look at that, we use this almost cliche statement in Christianity today and we have God's on the throne. God's on the throne. But Guys, God's on the throne. He's a king and he reigns for, the Bible says, forever. David says, and ever, and ever. And he's on the throne today. And the point is is that even though God may not explain to us why some people seem to get away with their evil deeds, God does assure us that he'll judge the wicked and ultimately defend his own. And I'm here to tell you, more times than not, God doesn't ever God really doesn't give us the explanation for why these things have been allowed to happen. Sometimes down the road, we have hindsight and we look back and we go, "Oh, as we were then able to see God's hand in the midst of it. But when you even go back to the book of Job and you study out Job, Job has these friends in the midst of his time of suffering when he loses everything, and I don't even know if they can really be called friends because they give him some really bad advice. And they, and they come and they counsel him, and Job's just even more discouraged and more distraught. And then you come to this section of the Scripture of Job where Job's like crying out to God, God, why is this? Why is that? What's going on? And, 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 and my paraphrase of how God answers Job is, God says this, He says, I'm not going to tell you I'm God and you're not. You don't get to know. Because I'm God and you're not. And that wasn't just this flippant statement in saying, you know, um, sometimes my parents used to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. It's like this authority kind of a thing. And it's like, that's not what God's doing when he says that to us. He's reminding us of who we are in relationship to him, but he's also reminding us of who he is. I'm God, Job, you know me. You know who I am. And, he, and then God goes on to pronounce his greatness in and, and questioning Job, and he says, where were you when I did this? When I spoke these things into existence. And, and Job is brought to the power, to the authority, to the majesty, and to the love of God. And we often look through our, our and that's the real answer anyway. God doesn't want us to give this a superficial answer. Well, well, this happened because people are wicked and there's sin in their heart and we live in a fallen world. All of those things are true, but those are secondary to the point of what we really need to focus on and is that God is God and I'm not. And that is enough. That's enough. And in that, Being that way, when God doesn't really give us the answer, when we look at that, we do assure, He does assure us that He will judge, because He's a just God, the wicked, and ultimately defend His own, because He loves us. And so, in these final verses, and then I'm going to tie it all together here for us, and we're going to wrap it up. In these final verses, the Lord, God, as He's David's kind of, as God comes into the discussion now, there's, there's answers given to all four of the statements of the wicked that are quoted in these verses that we looked at in verses 2 to 13. And in verse 14, we're first assured that God, if you look at it there, God sees what's going on. God sees what's going on. And this is intended to be the answer to what we read in verses 8 and 11, where there's this statement or this accusation that God, the Lord, is not paying attention to the wicked are doing. But God does see the trouble. God does see the outward circumstances. God does see our grief and the inward feelings that are caused by the wicked as they persecute the helpless. And God says, man, I'm gonna repay it by my hand. I'm gonna repay it by my hand. Furthermore, we read in verse 15 that God judges sin. He breaks the arm of the wicked and the evil man, literally destroys the power that they have, and, the, and, and, and this answers the false claim spoken then in verses 12-13 where the wicked declares that God, God will not require an account. Oh yeah? That's a scary place to be because God will require an account. When we see things going on, guys, and we go, how is God allowing that? God's just being patient and merciful and long-suffering. And for these people that we look at and we go, man, they should be getting this. God, God sees it too, and he's just, he's, but he loves them like he loves us, and he wants them to repent. He wants them to turn. But the fact of the matter is, is God will seek out wickedness until every single evil deed is exposed and judged. I love that until their wickedness is no more until there's no more wickedness and we know there's a day coming when there will be judgment and all things that are wrong will be made right. And this leads us to verse 16 where the claim is made in verses 2 and 4 they're answered when the Lord tells us that the Lord is king like I said earlier forever and ever and so even though the wicked claim that there is no god the truth is that God is real. God is real. I've jokingly I've I've joked around with people and and, and maybe made light of things, no, I don't want to say, it. yeah, I'll say it, um, with the, the whole COVID, and it's like, well, if you just don't believe in it, then it's not there, and, and I'm not suggesting that. There's, it's, it's real, and there's some things. Um, I don't think it's being represented as it is, but just because you don't believe something to be true that is true doesn't make it untrue, right, and that's, that's the thought process. God is real, and more importantly, guys, our Savior lives, and he rules over all. And as the, as the ruler over all, God, according to verses 17 and 18, then says he defends his people. Now look back. Now back in verses 5 and 7, we're told that the wicked then boast, right? They boast that they're not going to be moved. But the fact of the matter is, is this, is God has other plans. He has other plans for the wicked. And so we can rest assured that God hears the prayers we pray when we're being persecuted as he sees the suffering that we endure in our times of trouble. But more importantly, verse 17 tells us that God, I love this part, because it's not just about the external things. God just not concerned about the behavior and the the outside circumstances. God cares about our hearts. And verse 17 tells us that God will prepare our hearts, meaning as we put our trust in God, he prepares our hearts for whatever trials he permits us to go through. And he eventually judges those then who abuses our heart, takes advantage of our heart, betrays our heart. And the bottom line is, as we put our faith in God, we can depend on him primarily because he tells us that we have a future and a hope with him. Do you get that? The worship team wants to come up, hear it again, the bottom line is, as we put our faith in God, ultimately we can depend on Him primarily. The pinnacle reason for why we can, we can believe and trust in Him in these times that we're living in is because He says, you have a future and a hope with me, He says. Remember, guys, as Christians, we've been given what the Bible calls and tells us is a citizenship where? In heaven. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And, and not only that, when we talk about this future and hope with God, not only do we have a, 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 a citizenship in heaven, we're also told in Luke chapter 10.20 that God has written down our names in heaven. Meaning this is our possession that's been purchased for us that's been redeemed for us, that's waiting there for us. You see, we don't belong to this world. And although we're in the world, meaning that our ministry is of this world and to this world, we ultimately, who are God's people, have been, as we're told in Revelation chapter 14, verse 3, we've been redeemed from this earth. And I'm, I'm looking around, and I'm going, thank God, because it's going, it's going down the drain, Right? But this is not my home. I've been redeemed from this place that is full of sin and corruption and God's going to judge it one day and He's going to destroy it all to make it all new again. He's redeemed us from this earth and we as a result have heaven as our home. Listen, in the book of Revelation, we were just studying through the book of Revelation through all summer and a little bit longer than that, but I brought up that over and over again, those people who are against God in the end days, those people who are these wicked people that the Bible is describing here that are shaking their fists in the face of God. The Bible refers to him in the book of Revelation over and over again with this phrase. It says, them that dwell on the earth. Them that dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers. And that's in Revelation chapter 3, 6, 8, 11, 12, 13, 12, 14, 17, and so on, over and over and over again. And, and, and this phrase describes not only what these, where these unbelievers live in that sense, but it describes more importantly what they're living for, right? The earth, the things of this earth, this temporary things of this life that the Bible says are passing away. The earth dwellers. I'm gonna end with this. Church, the earth dwellers may seem to have the upper hand today. But we just need to wait until the Lord reveals his hand. Amen? Lord, and we do ask for that day when you, you reveal your hand. I, just, I, think about, I think about people sitting around at the card table and a guy lays down this, this flush and he goes to rake the pot in, these earth dwellers, and Lord, you lay down the royal flush. You reveal the king of kings. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, who comes first, Lord, to snatch us away, to catch us up at the sound of the trumpet and the twinkling of the eye. And then, Lord, ultimately, we know seven years later that you return in in glory and in power and in might with us, your church, your bride, wed to you, where you will rule and reign upon this earth, Lord. You reveal your hand And Lord, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, Lord, as we put our faith in you, I do ask, God, that you would give us courage and strength to stand for what is true, to stand for what is right. Lord, to be moved by faith in whatever you call us to do, no matter what the opposition is, no matter what the apparent loss of this life is, Lord, that we would know that it's it's all worth losing for what we will gain in you and through you. Lord, bless us, strengthen us, help us, Lord, to stay this course of following you in these years, in this, in this year to come. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you guys stand and we we'll sing the last song together?